Why did the chicken cross the road? A priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? We all know a good joke setup when we hear it. Even corny classic setups like these leave us waiting in anticipation for the inevitable punchline. Even if you're like my kids and know that the punchline is more likely to elicit a groan rather than an actual laugh, you still can't help but stick around for the end of the joke, even if it is a really bad dad joke. The kinds of jokes that I love, like some of my personal favorites. What's, what is big, green, fuzzy, has four legs, and if it fell out of a tree, would probably kill you? A pool table, of course. Why don't you ever see elephants hiding in trees? Because they're so good at it. And finally, what's the leading cause of dry skin? Towels, of course. I know, I know, I can, I can hear you groaning all the way through the live stream. I, I do request your prayers for my children who have to tolerate these all the time now that they're learning from home. These are the kinds of jokes that I can really only get away with telling to an empty church building during a pandemic. Maybe there's a reason why they tell preachers not to start their sermons with jokes. Preachers really do have a reputation for really bad jokes. And I think that's actually something of a shame because the Gospels and even Jesus himself are in fact hilarious. Now, that's not to say they aren't serious. Good humor doesn't just make you laugh, it makes you think. It softens us and breaks down our defenses. It helps us to see the world from a different point of view. Humor can be a brilliant, disarming teaching tool that can change and transform the way people understand the world. In fact, there are, there are some truths that can only be told through humor. I think Mark Twain knew that well. Yet much of the gospel's humor is lost on us some 2,000 years down the line with multiple translations in a completely different culture. But many of Jesus' parables weren't just shocking, they were really, really funny Sometimes absurdly so, his stories about shepherds and mustard seeds and plants come to mind as examples. So maybe it should come as no surprise that the gospel writers themselves sometimes build a little humor into how they tell their stories about Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves in our gospel text today. I'm convinced that we're in the middle, in the middle of a joke that the gospel writer's telling. Unfortunately, it's almost impossible for us to pick up on the joke because the lectionary cuts it in half. This week, we get the setup for the joke, and we have to wait till next week to get the punchline. Now, I want to be completely clear so there's no question. I am not saying that Jesus being identified as the Son of the living God and the Messiah is one big joke that we don't need to take seriously. Quite the contrary. I'm saying that the, that the humor surrounding this declaration actually adds to its legitimacy to me. You see, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and to declare that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah was quite a bold and at times unpopular claim, particularly 
given the unexpected way Jesus fulfills that role through being executed on the cross by the occupying Roman army. So Matthew builds a little comic relief amid the jarring and shocking divine revelation. So here's the setup which has its own bit of humor and wordplay all its own. This week, Simon, Simon, the very disciple Jesus keeps saying has so little faith, who is often seen in the Gospels with his foot dangling from his mouth, who doesn't ever quite understand what Jesus is talking about, somehow, miraculously, unexpectedly stumbles into the divine revelation at the heart of the Gospels. And he stumbles into it at a time when everyone else in the world seems to be barking up the wrong tree, thinking Jesus was simply another iteration of a beloved prophet of old. But who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. You're the Messiah, the the son of the living God, Simon replies, as if it is the most obvious thing in the world, when in fact it is actually the thing that Jesus has been telling everybody to keep a secret. If this were a modern sitcom, I imagine Peter's comments would be the moment when the record would scratch and Jesus would do a double take because you can almost hear our Lord's jaw hit the floor in joyous shock, almost in happy disbelief that the right answer finally came out of old Simon's mouth because Jesus basically tells him, I know you didn't come up with this on your own. My father in heaven had to help you out with this answer. Jesus then goes on to fawn all over Simon's historic confession, and rightfully so. He calls him blessed and gives him a new name like so many of the ancient lights of the faith. He goes from Simon to simply Peter, or quite literally, the rock, or if you prefer, perhaps Rocky. And in a humorous little play on words, Jesus says that it's on this rock, on Peter, that little rock, that he'll build his entire church. And maybe it's his joy and Rocky's flash of unexpected insight, but Jesus begins to share very quickly, very quickly, and a whole lot of what comes next. He tells Rocky that he is giving him the keys to the whole kingdom of God and that he's entrusting him and all the disciples That whatever they bind and loose on earth will be bound and loosed in heaven for eternity. Whatever they forbid and whatever they allow, in other words, on earth will be eternally valid. It will have eternal consequences. These 12 disciples who never seem to get the right answer except for today. I mean, what could go wrong? Unfortunately, that's where our lectionary leaves it today. And I get it, there are hundreds of really important sermons about this passage alone, about who Jesus is to us and to the world. But it is set up for the joke and the punchline that comes next week as well. Because no sooner has Jesus said these things that he begins to backtrack. Because Jesus goes on to explain that as the Savior, he must suffer and be crucified Peter decides to take those shiny new kingdom keys Jesus has just given him for a little test drive. And he actually attempts to bind Jesus himself. The newly christened Peter, still testing the limits of his new name and role in the kingdom, 
pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. God forbid it that this should ever happen, he says. Like always, Peter's mistake is out of the goodness of his heart. He wants to bind Christ to his own ideas. He wants to bind Christ to his own hopes. He wants to bind Christ to his own love. To forbid Jesus from from diverting from the path that the disciples want their master to travel. And Jesus calls him Satan for it. Get thee behind me, Satan. And so in the span of these three verses, Simon goes from being the rock to being the devil. (laughs) The rock on which the church will be built to its greatest adversary attempting to bring it down brick by brick. You could almost hear Jesus groan as if he's saying, okay, Peter, give me the keys back for a little bit. You're not quite ready. You may need a few more driving lessons before we get started. I personally think this whole exchange between Jesus and Peter would be right at home in the old screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s, like His Girl Friday with their fast-paced and quick-witted repartee. So, it's a funny scene, at least to me, maybe not to you, but what's the point? What's the great truth of God? What's the great truth of the Gospels, the great truth of humanity that we are to divine from this humor? Maybe it's that that even in a story that is ostensibly about declaration, about proclamation, about the most important divine truth of the Gospels, it's still not a story about triumph, least of all our own. Instead, maybe it's a divine comedy, a divine comedy of God's love for us. If that's a little uncomfortable to hear, just remember that even the cross, St. Paul tells us in Corinthians, is its own kind of folly to people. To me, this story is a microcosm of the entire story told throughout Scripture. It represents that eternal archetype in our sacred text, that we are forever in a dance with a God who out of love constantly overestimates our ability to follow and overestimates our ability to understand and us falling totally flat on our faces in true slapstick fashion and God reaching down and picking us up and refusing to give up on us, continuing to entrust us with the keys to the kingdom. It's that cosmic and divine joke that for all of our striving and for all of our misunderstanding, all of our misdeeds and all of our sins, all of our doing the right things for the wrong reasons and the wrong things for the right reasons, for all of our beauty and for all of our ugliness, for all of our confusion and for all of our knowledge, our successes and our failures, We are still totally, wholly, overwhelmingly, and unconditionally loved fully, even as we are known fully. It's like God looks at our faces and turns into the singer Taylor Swift and sees the next mistake, but still chases after us anyway. It is such 
good news. Such unbelievable good news that God loves us, you and me, here in Asheville, North Carolina, and always will no matter what. It's such good news. Maybe the only response, the only honest response really is laughter. Holy, joyful, cleansing laughter. Like we can't believe our good luck or God's goodness. Or as Presbyterian minister and author Frederick Beekner put it, is it possible, he writes, is it possible, I wonder, to say that it is only when you hear the gospel as a wild and marvelous joke that you really hear it at all? Heard as anything else, the gospel is the church's thing, the preacher's thing, the lecturer's thing, but heard as a joke, high and unbidden and ringing with laughter. It can only be God's thing. Amen.